Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and our text this morning will be verses 9 to 11. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we walk our way through this text this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving it to us so that we can hear from you. And we know that every single word here is written by the Holy Spirit and therefore is profitable. And so I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would again teach us the truths that are here, that he would illuminate these for us, that he would give us discernment, and that we would again understand what you have written, and then we would go forth rejoicing in what we have learned and applying what we have learned for your glory, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at 1 Thessalonians, and we really began a section that is dealing with future events back in verse 13. And again, we remember if we go all the way back to chapter 3 that Paul is filling in things that are deficient in their faith, lacking in the faith. In other words, things that they don't know and things that they need to live differently. And so Paul is in that area of instructing them here in verses, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11 on the day of the Lord. Now he began in the future events back in verse 13, speaking about something that they had already been taught about. And so this, these topics have already been taught to the church, but they are things that they need to be reminded of, things that they need to be clarified and assured of. And one of the things that the Thessalonians were worried about in, in the future, in, in future events, was number one, what happens to believers that die? Are they going to miss out in the parousia, the gathering of God's people together? Are they going to be less than in the future? And then they had some fears about the day of the Lord. They, were, they wanted to know when it was going to take place. They were afraid that they were going to participate in it. And therefore, Paul needs to address that. And again, he tells us in, in verse 1, I, there's nothing, I, you, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves well know. In other words, I've already addressed this, but I'm going to address it again for you. Now, as we go, th- go through this passage in verses 1 to 11, we said we saw there, there was this contrast. There was a contrast in pronouns between the you and the they, between us and them. There was this contrast of two different kinds of people. There were some people who were in the light, those who were in the realm of light. Spiritually, they were alive, and there there was those who were spiritually dead. 
And so Paul lays that contrast out here and says there's a difference in what's going to take place. And we saw in verses 1 to 3 where he really laid out the fact that the day of the Lord is coming, that, that it has already been spoken of, it's been testified to it, and that the ultimate people who the day of the Lord in judgment is aimed for is for unbelievers. And so he gave us really the target, we said, of those who were going to receive the day of the Lord. And then he came to verse 4 and he uses that contrastive conjunction, but we've been taking that in Bible Training Institute and people have just been loving grammar. It's been wonderful. But there's this contrastive uh, conjunction here, but you brethren... And he doubles up on the, on, the, on the identification. You, you who are the thus, you who are different than them and they, the brethren, believers. He says, but you, the day of the Lord's not going to come upon you. You don't have to worry about it. And he says, number one, he says, you don't have to worry about it because of your nature, who you are. You are in the realm of light. You are children of the daylight. Sons of the light. And he says, because of your nature, you are different. You will not experience it because if you are of the day, you can't be in the darkness. And the day the Lord's going to bring darkness and judgment. Therefore, you can't be part of it. You exist in a different spiritual realm that excludes the wrath of God. Well, then he spoke later on and he, and he spoke about, well, in light of that, here's the conduct that you should be having. This is how you should behave. In other words, people of the day act differently. Their behavior is different because of who they are. And so he called us to be sober, to be self-controlled and watchful. And the way we were going to be able to be sober and, and self-controlled was to put on the breastplate of faith and love. We need to put our faith in Christ. We needed to love God and then to love our brethren and have that expressed outwardly. And then lastly, he says, put on the helmet, the hope of salvation. And he says, this is, this is what is going to sustain you in the meantime is that you put on the hope of salvation, that you will not be in this wrath. Well, as he comes to verse 9 then, he, as he's already really dealt with our nature, who we are and what we are to do, he now comes and says you have a different destiny and you have a different place to do. And, and he says the reason you can be sure you're not going to go through the day of the Lord is simply because of what God has done for you. In other words, God's intention for you, God's plan for you, he, what he is going to accomplish on your behalf will keep you from going through the day of the Lord. In other words, he has given you salvation, his intention for you, and what he has, what he has purchased and proposed will keep you from going through the day of the Lord. You will never be under the wrath of God. And so this morning, 
as Paul talks about this and he says, you're going to be delivered out of this. And the reason that you can have hope for this is because God has delivered you out of this. And really this morning we will see four aspects of God's deliverance that should help us put on the helmet of hope of salvation that we will not go through the day of the Lord and it is achieved by God. And because God is the one who is achieving it, then we can take joy in it. And so this morning we'll see these four aspects. We'll see God's deliverance ordained. We'll see God's deliverance attained. We'll see God's deliverance gained. And then we will see God's deliverance exchanged. I went to a lot of, lot of effort for that one. So, <laughs> all right. So we'll, we'll see those four aspects of God's deliverance this morning that should give us hope that we will not go through the day of the Lord. That is the hope of our salvation. So again, he starts with four, and that again points back to the helmet of salvation. And, and it, now he's explaining why you can put it on, why it, why it works. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath. And again, this, this term here, he says, he has not destined us for wrath. In other words, he has not appointed us. He has not, he has not placed us in a place where we will see God's wrath. And the idea here is, is that he has appointed us not to be in wrath. He has not appointed us to be in wrath. He has not destined us there, and, but rather to salvation. And the idea here is that God acted in his own interest here. He didn't destine us for wrath. He destined us for salvation. He, an, he actually acted in his own interest. In other words, God acted according to his own will and, if, and according to what? His pleasure. In other words, what God did, he did according to his will, but according, not just his will, but his pleasure. As Ephesians 1 tells us, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be homely, holy and blameless before him in love. In predestined, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, this was God's pleasure. God delighted to do this. He delighted not to destine us for wrath. He didn't set a divine appointment for us. Rather, he destined us for salvation. And so this was God's passionate desire. Now, it's interesting here because we have to say the word wrath here is the word orge, which is, which is there's several words for anger in Greek. One is themos, theos, themos, which has the idea of exploding anger. It's, it's an anger that just, you, you fly off the handle and then it's over. But orge is, is more of a settled anger. It's an anger that, that continues to build its controlled, passionate, hostile feelings as for God, for sin. And it's interesting that this word is used for God's anger only. And it says that God is 
angry. In other words, his wrath is going to be poured out against sin. And it's the same word that is used in verse 9. For God did not destine us for wrath. That's the same word that he used in 110, sorry. And to wait for him, his son from heaven, who raised, whom he raised from the dead, that Jesus who rescues us, what? From the wrath to come. Well, what wrath is that? What wrath is he speaking about? Well, we go back to verse 3 of chapter 5, and he says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And we could say this, this wrath here that he is speaking of, the wrath that we are delivered from, is the wrath of the what? What we were just talking about in context is what? The day of the Lord. This is a synonym for that wrath. This is what, this is again, reminds us of those, of those pronouns that he's been talking about. For God has not destined us for wrath. Right? It will come upon them in verse 3. The wrath will, and destruction will come upon them, but for us it will not come. It was spoken of, it is that, that day of judgment that was spoken of often in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament that, day, that future day of judgment. Zephaniah 1.15 And a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Again, Zephaniah 3.18, I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of the exile is a burden upon them. They will face that day. And, and so there is this speaking in the Old Testament of this time of judgment that will fall upon those who do not know the Lord, those who are in the darkness. It is that t- same spirit time that is spoken of in Revelation chapter 6 verses 16 and 17 as the Apostle John writes and they said to the mountains and the rocks fall upon us and hide us from his presence who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand and Paul says God has not destined us for that wrath. He has not destined us for the day of the Lord. That is not what we have been called to do. He says, but, a strong term of contrast, but instead, what? For obtaining salvation, but for the obtaining of salvation. That is, God has destined us to salvation. So what does he mean here by salvation? When he's, now remember, he's speaking to the Thessalonians and he says, God has destined you for what? Salvation. Well, the word salvation is used in different ways within Scripture. Sometimes it's used to refer to saving salvation when we come to be saved. It, it has the idea of being saved from sin. 
But the word is also used to be saved from circumstances. So as Paul comes and writes, he's just said, God has saved you, he has not destined you for wrath. And that wrath is what? The day of the Lord. And now he says, what? But for salvation. And that word can be translated deliverance. And so Paul is not using this word in the idea of entering into peace with God at salvation where you you ultimately come to salvation and are born again. He's talking to the Thessalonians that they've already experienced that. They've already come to salvation. Chapter 17 records that they turned and came to God. Right? Paul says that they turned from idols to serve the living God. And so he's not speaking here as he uses this term about their regeneration and having peace with God, but he's speaking about deliverance from the day of the Lord. And so when he writes that God has, not de- has destined them from attaining salvation, he is describing the reality that the church will be delivered from the day of the Lord. This is an understanding that fits the preceding context here in verses 5, 1 to 8. And it fits nicely with chapter 1, verse 10, where we talked about being saved from the wrath to come. In verse verse 1, verse 10, the Thessalonians in their infancy as, as new believers, as a new church, are waiting for Jesus to rescue them from the wrath to come. And what Paul is saying is this. God has not only elected you to eternal salvation, but he has chosen you and he has elected you to escape the day of the Lord. What the old prophets described, what Jesus described at the Olivet Discourse, what John described as we read in Revelation chapter 6. And so Paul indicated that God has sovereignly destined the church to escape that. That they will not go through that. They will be rescued from the impending wrath. They will not go through that time. It's similar to what John wrote to the church of Philadelphia. Because you kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so Paul says, listen, the reason you're not going to go through the day of the Lord and the reason you don't need to fear it, it's it's not God's intention for you. God has ordained you for, to be delivered from it. He's done that in the in kind intention of his will. He has kept you from this and you don't need to fear it. And so he says, this is what God has done for you. God has ordained that you will not go through it. So Paul says, deliverance ordained and then he moves on and he says deliverance attained in other words 
And he says that at the end of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10. Through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So the question that we often get asked, and maybe the question that should be in our mind is, why should we get away from God's divine wrath? Don't we all deserve to go through the day of the Lord? Haven't we all sinned? Why do some people get in and some people don't? Why do some of us get out of it and some of us stay in it? That doesn't seem fair. After all, the church has gone through persecution. Why should the church get out of this? Well, Paul answers that question here. He answers why those who were by nature children of wrath, like the rest, how can they escape this? And Paul explains in verse 9, it's not because of what we do. It's not because of our merits. It's not because of our achievements. It's not something because we're super special or super smart or because we made a good decision. He says this is made possible, he says, through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. This is the basis for divine deliverance. In other words, the reason that God can ordain us not for wrath and can place us in salvation and deliverance from the day of the Lord is because what Christ has achieved. He does not point to the Thessalonians. He doesn't uh, point to their divine, to their achievements. That's not what attains divine deliverance. It is simply through the Lord Jesus Christ who what died for us. Now I want to look at the details a little bit more. Notice the progression of th- uh, through this section. Notice that little word through. He says, through the Lord Jesus Christ. This introduces the idea of mediation. We have a mediator, one who attires this divine rescue. This is the one who mediates it. And Paul describes this one who is mediating this, this one who is making it possible. This is through him. This is the means that it happens. He says, as our Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes him in his fullness of who he is. He describes him in terms of his sovereignty. He says, this one who mediated our redemption, the one who keeps us and made it possible for us not to be under wrath, he is our Lord. He is sovereign. He is the one above all. He is the one who has the right to rule. He has the right to do this. He is described as Jesus in his humanity. This is the name of his incarnation. This is the one who came. And the angel said to Mary, you shall call his name Jesus. He's the one who suffered and died on the cross. He's the one who lived a perfect life in his humanity through all of his life. And then we have the third description, the third title that is given to him, Christ. A title that emphasizes his Messiahship. He's the anointed one. He is the one who has come, the high priest who has paid the price for us. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, who died 
for us, who died for us, this Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. And again, I want you to just notice this. He says, who died. Historical fact. Paul is saying that there is a historical fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth, was in the flesh, and he died. This isn't something, this isn't a story, right? He died. Literally, he ceased to exist. Literally cut to die off. All natural life was expired. He didn't swoon. He died. And we would say that if we're still, that he also was raised again. Now notice this. The historical fact that he died in the past for us, and it says for us. Intent. He died, and he had intent. Now I want you to notice this richness here. He died... For who? Us. Right? We're part of the you. Right? As opposed to they and them. We're the us. You know what that says? His death was two things. It was substitutionary. And it was particular. In other words, he died for us. He died for a particular group. He died for those who the Father gave him. Right? Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the what? The sheep. Jesus' death was particular. It was sufficient for all, but he died for a particular people. That's why he said to the Pharisees, you don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. He didn't say, you're not my sheep because you didn't believe. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. And so Christ died in a particular way for particular people. It was substitutionary. It was in our place. He faced the Father's wrath. Galatians 1.4 says, who gave himself for our sins that we might deliver that he might deliver us out of this present evil age he gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us his he died a substitutionary death he died for all that they who live should not no longer live for themselves but for him and rose again on their behalf he died for a particular people he died in their place He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. And so he says, listen, you have been, he died for us. This is how he purchased this for us. He has chosen us. In other words, if he has chosen us in eternity past and he has chosen us for himself through the substitutionary death of the cross, then we cannot be set out for destruction. 
The hymn says, the church has one foundation. From heaven he came and sought to be, sought his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. For his life he died. And he says, because Christ came and died, because Christ has paid the wrath of God already on your behalf, you will never, ever face the wrath of God. Good news. Not only was his intention to keep you from wrath, he made it happen. You will never face the wrath of God. So God has ordained deliverance. He's attained that deliverance. And then we see deliverance gained in verse 10. He says this, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. This phrase starts with the word so that, and it's a purpose clause. It's a purpose clause. But before he gets to the purpose, he's going to give a statement, and he's going to give us a statement about two different conditions. If we were to actually read the causal statement here, and, and this is, we were talking about this in class, and so I'm so glad we're doing this today. He says this, now look, look at the verse. So that, and then he puts this phrase in, whether we are awake or asleep, but here's actually the causal statement, so that we will live together with him. This is why Christ died. This is the, this is the purpose for which he died so that we will live together with him. So why Paul then inserts this other phrase, whether we are awake or asleep. And he inserts this because he is trying to deal with the Thessalonians' anxiety here, the things that they are struggling with. And so he brings this truth to it in order to give them comfort. Now this clause, so that whether we are awake or asleep, is probably one of the hardest phrases in this paragraph and certainly within the book of Thessalonians to understand what it means. And so because it's hard to understand, it has spawned various different understandings to this text. And I want to just give you three. I want to tell you the one that I would understand to be true. The first one is simply this. That Paul is using the word awake and sleep here simply in their most literal sense. In other words, it doesn't matter whether you are asleep or awake. It doesn't matter if you're sawing logs. It doesn't matter if you're completely passed out or whether you are awake, walking around in alert, alert, when the Lord comes, we will be able to live together with him. And so the idea would simply be this. You can sleep, people. It's okay to sleep. You will not miss it if you happen to be sleeping and, and the Lord returns and the day of the Lord will not come upon you. All right, so he's not talking about f- physical sleep here. He's not taking it literally. In some ways, that's kind of trite to think that we would have to, if you happen to be sleeping after all that Christ has done, that somehow if you happen to 
nod off in your chair that you miss God's deliverance. The second view takes this in a more theoretical way, or we would say a figurative way. And it takes this to mean physical life and physical death. And the idea here is that we are alive in our bodies, whether we have died or were asleep, whether we will live together with him. And so the idea is that if whether we are physically alive or physically dead when he returns, we will, we will not, uh, we will be delivered. And again, this would be maybe a repeat of chapter 4, verse chapter 4. Paul has already used sleep metaphorically for those who have died. Back in chapter 4, Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so the idea would be that Paul is again reassuring them that whether you are alive or asleep, you will be together with Christ. And that is a possible interpretation because it, it's in, in, in that interpretation, Paul is just simply again giving us comfort that those who are dead will be able to be with the Lord together. But I think contextually that gives us some problems. And when we, when we look at it, I think we're going to see that maybe there's a third option that will, will explain what is taking place here better. Coming to verse 10, he's referring to those who are dead or alive. Um, their problem is this. When Paul refers to those who have fallen asleep, he uses an entirely different verb than he does in chapter 4. He uses a a different word for awake and a different word for sleep. And the verb difference should not be ignored. Paul changes the verbs here in chapter 5 so as not to communicate the same idea as chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He uses, he changes the verb to a different verb here referring to sleep. And that's intentional on his part because he wants to disassociate the two concepts. Paul in chapter 5 verse 10 is not referring to those who have died physically. That is not what, not who he has in view in verses 9, 10, and 11. This leads us to this third view which which takes the verbs to wake and sleep in a figurative way in a moral sense. It does not see this as a reference to life and death, but instead is used in an ethical or moral sense. What Paul is saying here is that whether believers are morally alert or if they are morally asleep, they will be delivered. Many people do not like this view. 
and they have theological reasons because they think, listen, that cannot be. How can Paul, after telling us how to conduct ourselves, now tell us that we doesn't matter if we're alert or sober, but he tells us to be. Won't, and if we communicate this, isn't this going to learn, lead to moral laxity in the church? Aren't we going to be promoting that people don't have to be obedient? Aren't we going to be pushing them to license? Aren't we giving them permission for that? And for that reason, many people will not interpret this passage this way. But I say, it doesn't matter where things lead. We have to ultimately go where Scripture takes us. And I want you to notice that the strength for this view comes from the near context. In other words, instead of going back to chapter 4 and saying one of these looks like the other, we need to to deal with what is in the passage here in chapter 5. Now notice in 5 verse 6, Paul says, in light of our identity, in light of who we are, because of what Christ has done, he says in verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Now, I want, what I want you to see is that the same verbs that are used in verse 6 is the same one used in verse 10. Same words, same verbs, different ones in chapter 13, same ones. There's a parallel here between verses 6 and 10. When Paul says, whether we are awake or asleep, uh, there's a parallel. And when he goes on, he says this, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert that the same verb, that's the same verb as the same verb as awake in chapter 10. He says, let us be alert, let us be awake, whether we are asleep or alike. We will be together with him. We're finding a direct parallel between both verbs, a parallel between verses 10 and 6. We know for certain in verse 6, he is talking, not talking about life and death. He's not saying, so then let, let us not die as others, but let us live. He's speaking of moral alertness and moral laxity. And we saw that last week. He's saying... So then let us not be morally lax as others, but let us be morally alert. Then this is the, the, in verse 10, has the same idea. We will be delivered by, delivered, Paul says, by the death of Christ, so that whether we are morally lax or morally alert, we will live together with him. And so I think the context here is consistent. The same words for the same ideas, still speaking about moral laxity. Now I know again, for, we have a tendency to say, well that cannot be. That will just lead to license, that will just lead to sin, that will lead to people not being accountable. If believers are promised deliverance and yet they don't have to be alert, they don't have to be spiritually where they should be, and if they're living in spiritual laziness, they will live there. 
But I think that's not the conclusion that we should draw from God's grace here. Maybe like Paul, we would say, may it never be. But we have to understand what Paul is saying here. We must understand this reality. The promise of deliverance from future wrath is never contingent upon human performance. Paul is not saying go and let live. Paul is making the point here in this passage that it is not human works. It is a divine work. And he started from the beginning. It is God's intention. It was God who ordained this. It is God who made this happen. And so he says, this is not contingent upon your performance. And that's what he's been making the point through this whole passage is exactly that. He didn't ordain you to this. He's the one who made it happen. Would say this. This should be the balm of our soul for every one of us who is struggling with sin who is sitting there continually believing that somehow we're not good enough and that we will actually be in the day of the Lord and that we will not be delivered because we're not perfect, because we struggle with sin. I'd also say if you're not struggling with sin, that's a problem. But to these young, weak believers, he says, listen, ultimately you know you will be delivered because this is what? an act of God. It's not contingent on you. God intended it. He purposed it. It will happen. It is contingent on, listen to this, as one writer says, on the sovereign determination of God, the historical accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross alone. It will never be by our performance or accomplishments. Robert Thomas says in his commentary about this, since future salvation has been fully provided by Christ's finished work, it cannot be canceled by a lack of readiness, moral preparedness or unpreparedness. It does not affect the issue one way or the other. Every contingency has been met through the work done at Calvary by God himself. Christians need not fear missing the Lord's return for his church because they are sons of light and sons of the day. Their enjoyment of the future resurrection and reunion with Christ is certain. And so Paul is saying, listen, I I want you to understand this that the ultimate deliverance from God comes from the day of the Lord comes not through what you do, but through God's intended design and his purpose. And he says, we will live together with him. We will live together with him. Again, there is this, look to the future that we will we will live we will do life with him we will be together with him the idea here is is not just that we will be in the same room the words used here have the idea of intimacy in other words we're not just going to be 
taken to heaven and we're going to be standing across the room or in another building and Christ will be somewhere else. But that we who are, who are believers will be together. We will be intimately together with him in heaven. There will be an intimacy there. And we will see him face to face. As First John says, Beloved, we are children of God and have not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. In other words, we will see him face to face. We will be together. John said, Jesus said in John chapter 14, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to heaven. No, to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And he says, this is, my, this is why you can't be in the day of the Lord. This is why you can't, because I'm coming back to take you to myself where, so that you will be with me. My intention is not to send you through my wrath. My intention is to save you from it and to take you to be with me. And he says, this is deliverance gain. This is what my purpose is. Not my intent on not destining you for wrath, but for salvation. The reason that I sent Jesus Christ to die across on the cross to provide the means is so that here you can be with me. And he says, this is your hope. This is the hope of salvation. That God intended it. God made it possible. And God made it so that we would be with him. So we've seen deliverance ordained, attained, and gained. And now we see deliverance exchanged. He says, therefore, therefore, in light of the assurances of verse 10, that all is taken care of in death and the resurrection of Christ, in light of that, dear Thessalonians, here's what you need to do. Here's your responsibility. You must exchange this truth with one another. They are encouraged, it says, to build, therefore encourage one another and build one another, build up one another, sorry. And he says, here's what you need to do. This this hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the reality of what Christ has done for us in salvation isn't something that we are to hold on to personally and keep. He says, actually, I want you to exchange it with one another. I want you to encourage one another and build each other up. This idea has the, the idea of encouragement here uh, has the idea of, a, of definitely calculated words to help other people to be cheered, to encourage them in diligence in their human life, Christian life. But there's also the idea of comfort. Paul used this word back in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. 4, 
4.18. Therefore, what? Comfort one another. We are to be comforting each other. We are to encouraging each others with these truths. And in doing that, he also says we are to be what? Building one another up. In other words, we are to be We are to be encouraging one another so that we will grow in the faith. The idea is of building a house. And he says, we are to be building one another up, encouraging one another so that we we are growing spiritually. And it's interesting because, again, we see this one another, one another. This this idea of reciprocation. I do it to you, you do it to me. It means that all of us are required to be involved in this. It's interesting. We are called to, to do this, and, and, and you notice this. The believers don't need to hear anything new all the time. He's not telling them something that is completely new. He's, telling, he's reminding them of something old. We don't need to always get something new and fanciful. We need to be reminded of the things that we already know. We need to be encouraged one another with the things that we already know. We tend to forget them. It's interesting that both of these verbs are, are, are actually commands. They are commands that are to be held, to be c- carried out continually. In other words, you just don't encourage once. You just don't try to build up once. You keep on encouraging. You keep on edifying. This is the way that people of the day are to behave. People of the day who are surrounded by people of the night, we need to be continually what? Encouraging and building one another up. Spurgeon writes, the More of this, the better. Christian people should constantly converse with one another for mutual edification. Encouragement should not be an intermittent occurrence, but a daily occupation, and it should be an ever-increasing occupation in view of the fact that the day draws near and return closer to the return of Christ. And so he says, encourage one another with this. This is what you need to be doing. In other words, remember God's intention. Remember what Christ has done in order to make it happen. Remember what God's purpose was. Put the pieces together and take these pieces and encourage one another. You were never intended for wrath. Why would Jesus die for you? Why would he face God's wrath if you were going to be in wrath? He wants wants you to be with him in heaven where you will see him face to face. These are the things that we are to take and encourage one another as we look to the future, recognizing when Christ comes, we won't face his wrath. We will be delivered from the day of the Lord. It is not for us. And then Paul ends it in this lovely way. Paul is such, such a pastor. I think I'd like him to be mine. Paul, as a wise father, again, recognizes their efforts. And he says, just as you also are doing. Thessalonians, you're already doing this. You're already encouraging one another. You're already building one another up. 
just excel more. Just excel more. Like he said earlier, increase and abound in love for one another, for all men, just as you do, so that he might establish you, right? That you might, what? Abound still more. He gives them a word of encouragement. You're doing good, but do more. And I would say to you, Bowmanville Baptist, I've seen you encourage one another. I've seen you build up one another. I've seen just the joy of the Lord, and I've seen you take the word of God and take it to your hearts and to start to live it. But I would say, as Paul says here, just as you're doing, excel still more. Let's excel in encouraging one another. And let's be encouraged by the fact that we will never face God's wrath. That should cause joy. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the deliverance that is promised here in your word. And we thank you that we will never have to face your wrath, that we will never stay under that, but we are delivered. And we are not delivered because there's something special about us, but because of the kind intention of your will. You, from eternity past, ordained and destined us that we would never have to face wrath. You provided the way through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the means that allowed you to not pour your wrath out upon us. And then you purposed that we would live with you, not under your wrath, but in the glory of your presence. And so we praise and thank you for that. And I pray that we would encourage one another along those lines. In your name and for your glory, I pray. Amen.